0: 1 Samuel thirteen one through 7 is the passage of Scripture this morning. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah. Of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in the cisterns, and some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling.
1: Let's go before the Lord and ask for his help. Father, this is a piercing word today and I pray that by your spirit it would indeed pierce our hearts and I pray, Father, that we would be open to your work in our lives. I pray that we would allow you to probe into the depths of who we are and how we think and how we live and how we are living, especially in light of your word, Father, and with regard to the speech that you want to speak into our lives every single day. Father, please use this ancient word to do a fresh and important work. Father, please call us to new heights of obedience, to new heights of joy in Christ and help us to walk away, Father, from fleshly things. Help us to learn what it means to press on in patient faith. Father, I love you and I thank you for what you'll do now through this word. In the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. Those who live by faith in Christ also live by the grace of Christ. In other words, we live by the power of what Jesus has done for us, not by the power of what we plan or will or have done for him. And what specifically has he done for us? Well, he's done quite a bit actually. (laughs) Jesus, whether we feel it or not, whether we have high emotions about it or not on any particular day, The truth of the matter is that Jesus has made us perfectly righteous before God the Father through his perfect obedience that led him all the way to death on a cross that he might pay the penalty for our sin and pave the way for us right into the presence of God. And because he did that, beloved, all who believe in him have their sins wiped away, past, present, and future. Because he did that, all who believe in him have the right of access to God, and not everybody has that right of access. Because he did that, the Bible says that those who believe in him have the right to be called children of God. We used to be enemies of the state, and now we're children of the great king. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, actually have the right to look in the face of Almighty God and call Him Father. The Aramaic word is Abba. It means something more like Papa or Daddy, something more intimate, something familial, something childlike. Can you imagine having the right to talk to God like that when you have sin in your life? And I have sin in my life. Beloved, this is the power of what Christ has done for us. He has won a rousing and irreversible victory for us against the forces of darkness. And everyone who believes in him receives all the implications of what he's done by simple faith, by simple trust, by simply clinging to him who's done it all for us. If I could, let me put it this way. The finished work of Christ is the final work of our lives, So that now all that is incumbent upon us, all that God asks of us, is that we believe in the one whom God has sent. Our only work is to believe in Christ, whose work is finished. Amen? Beloved, I know that many of you know this in your minds, but please open your heart and let God's light shine. Let him make this new to you. Let him make it fresh to you. Let him encourage you, let him empower you. Your only work is to believe in the Christ whose work is totally finished. This is what we believe, beloved, because it's what the word of God teaches. But I do want to add this, that even for those who are in Christ, obedience still matters and disobedience still matters. Our obedience does not earn our salvation before the Lord. It does not increase our standing before the Lord. Our disobedience cannot steal what Christ has won for us. And it does not diminish our standing before the Father. We stand before God in the righteousness of Christ, not in our own righteousness. And yet, when we're in Christ, beloved, the natural fruit of that fact is that we learn to walk in obedience and we learn to love that. We learn to walk in obedience because we want to, not because we're forced to. Someone has said that true freedom is wanting to do what you ought to do. True freedom is having a passion to do what God has called you to do. And for anyone who's in Christ, this spirit is increasingly present in our lives. Beloved, obedience still matters. Disobedience still matters. And that's what today's message is about. Today's message from First Samuel 13 is a stern warning against disobedience and its consequences. And it's a strong invitation to come into the presence of God and take seriously the word of God that our Father might lead us in the way that we should go. When we come to the end of the story, the singular story that is 1 Samuel 11 through 12, King Saul is at a high point of his life, and it seems to us like he's in a good place with the Lord and with his people. Uh, Although Israel had rebelled against God by asking for him, from him, an earthly king, God had been gracious to them, and God had given them a man who seemed like he would be an able leader. He seemed like he would be a good king. He seemed from all indications up to this point that he would be wise, that he would be worshipful, that he would be strong, that he would be a leader, and yet he would be humble and he would lead Israel in the way that they should go. Beloved, at the end of chapter 12, the hope in Israel is high, the future is bright. And it's probably the case that things actually did go well under Saul's leadership for some time, but it's hard to tell. And what I mean by that is that the Hebrew text for chapter 13, verse 1, is very difficult to read in Hebrew, and it's difficult to translate. It's difficult to know exactly what the author is saying and how much time has passed between the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13. If you're interested in this kind of thing, I would encourage you later on your own time to take multiple English translations and compare them in chapter 13, verse 1. And you'll see the difficulty that translators have in rendering this verse. But whatever the particulars of what's going on in the author's mind, we know a couple things that are important here. We know from Acts chapter 13, verse one, from the mouth of the apostle Paul himself that Saul did in fact reign for 40 years. One of the brothers and I were musing last week or the week before that we don't often think about the length of Saul's reign, but he reigned a long time. And the Jewish historian Josephus backs this up. Saul reigned for decades, and we know from some things Josephus said that probably quite a bit of time passed between the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13, maybe as much as 20 years have gone by just since last Sunday for us. A lot of time has gone by, beloved, and probably things started out well for Saul. The first few verses of the chapter make it look like that. If you'll you'll look there, what you'll see is that it paints for us a picture of King Saul who is in command of Israel and who is leading them well. The Bible tells us that he chose for himself 3,000 elite warriors and he kept them with him and with his son, Jonathan, and the rest he sent home. He let them go back to their dwelling places. In other words, he was being gracious to them. He was not forcing them to leave their families and leave their towns and to spend their lives doing the will of the king. In the beginning of chapter 13, beloved, Saul is a good leader. He's an organized leader. He's a smart leader. He's a gracious leader. This is the picture that we get. And then in verse three, the picture gets even better. He has a son, just sort of pops up out of nowhere, full grown, his name's Jonathan. And he's part of Paul's, uh, of Saul's warrior force. And not only that, but he actually won a rousing victory against Israel's intractable enemies, the Philistines. And Saul was so encouraged by this victory that he sent a trumpeter throughout the land to blow the trumpet and to share the good news that he, through his son Jonathan, had defeated their mortal enemies, the Philistines. And so, beloved, it seems that times are good. It seems that hope is high. It seems that Saul is leading well. It seems that things are going well. But please notice right in the middle of verse 4 is a little seedbed of the bad news that's here that's probably been developing for years and years and years. Along with the good news that Jonathan had won a rousing victory also came the news that his success caused Israel to be a stench in the nostrils of the Philistines. In other words, Jonathan's success raised the ire of the Philistines so that they were now gathering their troops and coming out for war against Israel. And boy, were they coming out for war. They gathered many, many chariots. They gathered many, many horsemen. They gathered troops. The Bible says it's like the sand of the seashore, which is just a biblical way of saying there were so many. Probably you'd look out on the landscape and feel like you couldn't count them all. The force was exceedingly strong. And if you Pay attention to some of the details in the text, which is a little bit hard. Take some work in this particular chapter. What you'll see is that they actually encamped right in the city where Saul had taken up his position with his elite forces. They went to the heart of the most powerful part of the army of Israel and they made war against Israel right there. And their forces were so strong and their their attitudes were so fierce. The future looked so bleak that they struck fear into the hearts of the men of Israel and the men of Israel scattered everywhere. It amazes me to see that even the warriors of this people who just in chapters 11 and 12 had won a rousing victory by the power of God. Will you notice there in verses five, six, seven in there somewhere that they were so afraid that they were hiding in holes, holes in the ground. They're hiding in caves, they're hiding in rocks, It even says that some people were hiding inside of tombs. Can you imagine being so scared of other people that you would actually crawl into a place where dead people have been buried to save yourself? And these are the warriors of Israel? Not just the common people. Some of them jumped into cisterns, which were places that the Israelites would dig out to store water. They would rather be in a hole in the ground where water was being stored and stay there for a long time than expose themselves to the Philistines. Beloved, fear was rampant in Israel. Some people were so afraid that they actually left the country. There was a refugee crisis, if you will. They went to the east, across the Jordan, into the land of Gad and Gilead, to the north and and to the east of the main part of Israel. And even though that land was technically in the hands of Israel, it was beyond the the, the place where the danger zone was. The people were deathly afraid and they're fleeing in every direction. And to make matters worse, we learn from the end of the chapter, verses 19 through 23, that before this battle even ever began to take shape, The Philistines had such control over Israel that they completely shut down the metalworking industry in the country. The Bible tells us that in these days, because of the Philistines, there wasn't even a single blacksmith, a single metalworker in a country of two million people. Why? The Philistines did not want Israel to be able to make weapons of war. And they actually had the political, military, and commercial control over the country to stop them from doing so. Can you imagine another country, beloved, having the power to come into the United States and shut down any of our industries? Name the industry. Philistia had this kind of power over Israel, and it's obvious that this wasn't happening overnight. This had developed over a period of time. So when the day of this particular battle done, guess how bad the situation was? You had this horrible army of Philistines against a very small army of Israelites and you only had, the Bible tells us right at the end of this chapter, you only had two swords in the entire nation of Israel. One belonged to Saul, one belonged to Jonathan. Can you imagine that? Two chapters ago, Saul led out an army of over 300,000 men who defeated a very powerful king, Nahash of the Ammonites. Known not just in the Bible, but known in other historical texts. He was fierce. He was strong. And by the power of God, they defeated him. And now here, a couple chapters later, they got two swords in the country. Beloved, we just have to ask the question, why are there only two swords in all of Israel? Why do the enemies of the people of God have total control of the weapons of the people of God? Why have the Philistines been able to completely subject the people of God when God sent them into that land to drive out the other nations and establish the worship of his name and to be blessed that they might be a blessing to others? Why are there only two swords in the entire nation of Israel? Whatever the first few verses of this chapter look like, beloved, something is really wrong. And I think we're about to find out what it is that's wrong. Unlike Saul, unlike many in the country, Saul did not flee the country. In fact, he didn't even flee the area where the Philistines were attacking. In this way, he was being a good king. He was like the captain of a ship that was going to go down with the ship. He was not going to abandon it. He was doing what a good king ought to do. And he received instructions from Samuel to go again to that sacred city of Gilgal and to wait there for him. Samuel said, I'll be there on the seventh day, so Saul, go there and wait for me. Some unknown number of men went with Saul to that sacred city. They were trembling along the way. The most powerful, fierce men in Israel were scared to death. And there they waited with their king for one day, and then two days, and then three days, and then four days, and then five days, and then six days, and then seven days. And each day that went by, their enemy grew fiercer and their situation grew bleaker. They needed the favor of the Lord, and so they were willing to wait there with their leader for the Lord. However, as the seventh day came to a close, Samuel still had not arrived there. And the people who had gone there with Saul, out of fear, I believe, just trembling, gripping fear, began to scatter from him. They began to leave from him. Saul was losing whatever small force he had at his disposal and this caused him to begin to panic. This caused him to begin looking for a quick solution to a very serious problem. And beloved, I wanna warn us here that it will be very easy for us today to criticize Saul but I think we need to slow down and put ourselves in his shoes. They were not in Gilgal for vacation. They were there hiding from an absolutely fierce ISIS-like enemy that literally wanted to cut their heads off or otherwise kill them. This was not a joke. Literally, life and death are on the line. Saul is the king. His small force is scattering out of fear. And he has no idea what to do. I think that we should not hold Saul's feelings against him. I think if I was in his position, I would have been afraid too. I would have been scared too. But I do think that we should pay very close attention to how he managed his feelings and what he did with those feelings. And we should avoid what Saul did at all costs. Rather than putting his hope in the Lord and patiently waiting upon the Lord until the Lord did whatever he designed to do, Rather than pressing on in patient faith, beloved, Saul allowed a a severe crisis, an understandable crisis, to press him to make a fleshly decision that actually altered his entire destiny. Disobedience has consequences, big consequences sometimes. Here's what Saul did. He commanded the priests who were there that day to bring the burnt offerings and the priest's offerings before him and the Bible says that he offered those burnt offerings before the Lord. Now, we have to be a little careful at this point. I've always thought, my whole life in Christ at least, I've thought that this meant that Saul actually made the offering on the altars. And that's possible, but it's not necessary. If you'll keep your finger here, just turn really quick to Second Samuel 24 twenty-five. Second Samuel 24-25. I'm not going to read it all out loud with you, but, but I just wanted to point that out to you, that in this verse, it says that King David built an altar, and there David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar. Now, if Saul's particular sin was that he had offered those offerings, then David is condemned right along with him. But you see, sometimes these words, he offered, can mean he caused to be offered, we see the same thing in the kings when, when, we, when we get to the reign of Solomon. The same thing happens where the Bible says that he offered like 10,000 offerings. But this doesn't mean that, that Solomon personally did it. It means that he caused it to happen. And in 2 Samuel 24, it means that David caused this to happen. He caused the priest to give the offering. And it's possible at least... That in 1 Samuel 13, Saul did not personally offer the offerings, but that he forced the priests to do what Samuel had not yet given them permission to do. Whether he personally offered the offerings or made them be offered, here's the actual point then. Here's what his real sin is. Saul abused his power as king and coerced the priest to do his will rather than God's will. There is a massive presidential, kingly, abuse of power happening here that is deadly serious. And this is why Saul's sin receives such tremendous consequences when other kings don't necessarily receive the same level of consequences. If a president of the United States was caught co-opting the Supreme Court or the Congress, and somehow forcing them to do his will. If he was caught doing that, beloved, we would not tolerate it. We would impeach him. We would remove him from office immediately. You may not exercise power over the other branches of government, and so it is with God as well. God had given the king certain rights and certain responsibilities, and they were serious, but they were not absolute God had given the priests certain rights and certain responsibilities and they were serious, but they were not absolute. The king was to be the king. The priests were to be the priests. They were not to co-opt each other. They were not to do each other's jobs. They were not to use their power to force the other to do their will. But this is exactly what Saul had done, beloved, and he should have known better. This is the real point. He should have known better. Why do I say that? Do you know who his teacher was? Do you all understand how great in God's sight Samuel is? Do you understand? I know that we're all lowly in God's sight. I know that. But beloved, in the kingdom of God, in the history of redemption, Samuel has his place with Moses and with Abraham and with King David. He's a very great man. And Samuel personally taught Saul. Saul. He instructed him in the way that he should go and Saul, whether he did it or not, was required by God to read the word of God every day of his life. Do you remember this command? Deuteronomy chapter 17, God commanded the king, you shall make a copy of this law for yourself and read it every single day. Why? So that you'll worship me and remain humble before the people. So that you'll keep me first and will not... Use your power to abuse the people. Beloved, if Saul was ignorant of what he should have done in this moment, it was willful ignorance, and he had to be held in account. Here was a man that was put over the sacred people of God, and he greatly, knowingly abused his power. That's what's going on. That's why this is so incredibly serious. As soon as the burnt offerings were offered, The author's really careful to say it that way. As soon as they were done, and before the peace offerings were offered, Samuel showed up. Think about the impatience of Saul. Not more than an hour had passed since he gave that fateful command to offer those offerings. Since he had changed his destiny forever with a fleshly word. And then, boom, Samuel showed up. Oh, that Saul could have waited in patient faith rather than giving in to his fears and his fleshly desires. Oh, that he would have just trusted that God can rescue his people out of any impossible situation if we will only wait upon the Lord and do his will in his way. But he did not. And so when Samuel showed up, Saul went out to meet him and Samuel looked at him and just said, Saul, what have you done? What have you done? I don't know what the scene looked like, but I imagine that Samuel saw the smoke rising. I imagine you could smell the smell from quite a way away. Probably as Samuel is marching up to the city, he's like, uh oh, what's going on? And more importantly than all that, Samuel could feel the weight of the implications of what Saul had just done, he could see, I think in a flash, he could see into the future, God gave him a prophetic word to speak and he felt heavy under the spirit of the Lord when he said, Saul, what have you done? Saul answered like this, he said, oh, Samuel, the situation was horrible. When I saw that my force was scattering from me and when I saw that, you know, you didn't show up, you said you're gonna be here at such and such a time, you weren't there. And it concerned me greatly. When I saw that the Philistines were gathering steam and gathering energy, gathering more forces and that they were deadly, they're killing people in the hills and they probably set their sights on me and on this sacred city of Gilgal. Samuel, we were under direct threat. The situation was extremely severe. I knew that I needed the favor of the Lord. Oh, how could I go out to fight without the favor of the Lord? So Samuel... I hope you can understand, I had to force myself. Those are the words, you can read them in there. He said, I had to force myself to offer the burnt offerings, if I can put it in different words. I had to force myself to disobey the clear commands of God. And I hear the undertext, Samuel, I hope you can understand. I hope you'll have grace, I hope you'll forgive me. Beloved, this was a very serious thing. From my point of view, Saul's reasoning is actually not all that far off. He was in a dire situation. His situation was not normal. This was not just another day in Gilgal, beloved. This was life and death. And he had under his stewardship lives of men who had families and children. Right? This was not a small situation. I can understand his feelings, and I don't think his reasoning is that off, but his conclusion was oh so wrong. God will never require us to force ourselves to not do what he requires, right? You will never come to a place in our lives where we have to say, oh God, I'm sorry, I was in such a bad situation that I had to force myself to break your will, to force myself to break your commandments. Can you imagine Jesus looking the Father in the face and saying something like that? Beloved, that time will never ever come in our lives. In, In Saul, he should have known better. He really should have known better. Had Saul not heard about Gideon, for instance? Do you realize he lived right in the area where the Gideon story actually happened? Had he not heard about the small force of 300 that God used to rout a great army? Had he not heard of Joshua at the Jordan and at Jericho and even in Gilgal? Had he not heard about Moses at the Red Sea and the great army of Pharaoh and the ocean that was in front of them and how God parted the sea and destroyed the army without a single strike being struck by the Israelites, had Saul not heard? Yes, he had heard, beloved, and he had heard, and he had heard, and he had heard. But when he was in the midst of his own pressure-packed situation, he broke it's easy to read the stories of the Bible and say, yeah, that's what faith looks like. That's what I would do too. It's a very different thing to be in the midst of the situation. But when you're in the midst of the situation, especially when you have authority over God's people, oh, the call to patient faith is so much more important. When you're a father and a mother over a family, your, your, your position matters and your patient faith matters. When you have responsibility in, the, in your workplace or somehow in the world, your, your position matters and your patient faith matters. When you're a, a pastor or a leader in a church and you have some level of authority over people's, over people's lives, oh Father, please help us to understand how much patient faith matters. That beloved, in the midst of his moment, Saul broke And he did a very, very serious thing. Look at what Samuel said to him in verses 13 through 14. Here's the verdict. You you saw have done foolishly. This was not good. This was not wise. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you for the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Beloved, why were there only two swords in Israel? Why? Why were there only two swords in the entire land of Israel? Here's my answer. Because the sword of the Lord had been neglected by their king. Because the word of God had been ignored by their leader. Because Saul set aside the commands of God and then he acted in fleshly fear rather than in faith. And I think that this was true of him, not just in this moment of time, but in fact over time. And here's why I say that. Have you wondered at any point this morning why the Israelites were so powerfully subject to the Philistines? Have you wondered how this came about? The chapter says nothing about why. And you know why? Because it doesn't need to. If we've read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the first part of 1 Samuel, by the time we get here, we don't need the reasoning because we know the answer. When God's people have compromised their worship, they get handed over to their enemies. When there's compromise in our worship lives, there is vulnerability in the world, and I believe that this is what's happened in Israel, they were subject to their enemies because they were not bowed down before their God. Whatever their lives look like on the outside, the truth is, beloved, that they were worshiping other things and thinking of other things than the Lord. And the text doesn't say it explicitly, but I cannot help but think that Saul himself had grown into a habit of setting aside the word of God day by day. I just cannot believe that this man was doing what God commanded him to do in reading the Bible every single day. Because if he did, if he did do what God called him to do, he would not have done this. He would not have done this. You see, Saul got in the daily habit of setting aside the word of God. Do you understand? And then, when the crisis came, you know what he did? He set aside the word of God. We don't set aside the word of God in a moment of time. I heard a story just the other day of, a, of a, a couple where there was an adultery in the couple and the thing was said that this just happened. Well, I promise you something. It did not just happen. No, it did not. There's a daily setting aside of the word of God so that when the moment of temptation or the crisis comes, boom, word of God is set aside. Why was there... Only two swords in Israel, beloved, why? Because the leader of the land had set aside the sword of the word. So let me put it to you this way. When God's people fail to take up the sword of the word, we find ourselves without weapons to fight against the world. Do you see that? Do you see that this is God's appointed means to equip us for the war that we must fight in this life? When God's people put aside the sword of the word, we find ourselves impotent against our enemies in the world. Compromise always leads to vulnerability. In my estimation, this is what happened to Saul. This is the deeper thing that's happening. Unbelief has wrecked his life because he set aside the word of God. When this confrontation was over, Samuel went his own way and Saul took a small force of people back to his home region he took up some position. The Philistines were striking to the north, to the west, to the southeast at will. They're having their way with Israel. Beloved, things do not look good. They look bleak. The future does not look bright. But if God is willing, when we come back to First Samuel 14 on January 10th, we will see that God was in total control of the situation. We'll see that he was leading his people in the way that they should go. He had already begun to raise up another king for his people, another prince over his people, and that prince would point to the prince of peace. That king would point to the king of kings, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved God was thinking about his people even in light of the fall of their king. But we'll have to save that for another time. For now, I wanna take just a few more minutes with you And I want to bring our hearts before this text. To me, it's a very simple thing to judge Saul and to judge people like him. It's easy to read the Bible and say, he shouldn't have done that. I would never have done that. The harder thing to do is to bring our own hearts before the Lord and say, Lord, please use this word to pierce my heart, to expose my life. Use this word to confront me. Use this word to heal me. You see, we who live by faith in Christ, we also live by the grace of Christ. But here's, in part, how the grace of Christ operates. Sometimes Christ will take a chapter, like 1 Samuel 13, and put it up like a light, a floodlight into our souls, and say, my son or my daughter, see yourself. See yourself, and let me help you, let me heal you. So how can we be helped by this text? Well, I think that, like Saul, we too face serious difficulties and sometimes even potential destruction and sometimes even death in our lives. And so to me, the question before us is this. When we face things like this, serious things like this, do we tend to persist in patient faith and obedience or do we tend to give in to fear and disobedience. What's your tendency in the heat of the moment? What do you do? Do you tend to fly to God and pay attention to his word? Or do you tend to flee from God and set aside his word? What is your tendency when you're the one in the hot seat, when you're the one in the crisis? Are you like Saul? Do you completely ignore the word of God? Or are you like Samuel? Are you like one who would embrace, fully embrace the word of God? Now I do wanna say that I think the presence of difficulties in our lives is not necessarily a sign that God has handed us over to our sin or or that he's handing us over to our enemies. Sometimes we suffer specifically because we're serving the Lord, right? The, The best example of this is Jesus himself. He never sinned, but oh, did he suffer. So the presence of problems in themselves is not the problem. But here is the problem. Here's the thing that I think exposes our hearts. It's persistent fear in the face of horrible problems. This is what really happened to Saul. A great moment of fear and then he acted in the flesh rather than by faith because he had set aside the word of God. It's one thing to feel fear in a difficulty And then to bring that fear to the Lord and bring that fear to God's people and to process that with him and with them in his presence. It's another thing to give in to fear, to embrace fear, to live by fear, to be motivated by fear, to do nothing to confront our fear, to do nothing to set our eyes on God. To persist in fear, beloved, is a sign of unbelief in our hearts. If you can't shake fear off of your life, it's a sign that somehow deep inside there's unbelief. Somehow, some way you're setting aside the word of God. Maybe you're even reading it, but you're finding it hard to believe because somehow, some way, you're keeping it distant from your heart. Believe me, please believe me. Persistent fear is always a symptom of unbelief. This is what's happening in Saul's life. And if we are to avoid the kind of tragic decision that Saul made. What we have to do when we're struggling with fear and unbelief is we need to, by the Holy Spirit, probe down and probe down and probe down until we find the cause, until we find out what's happening in our particular situation so that we can come into conformity with the will of the Lord. And what's the will of the Lord? Beloved, it's so simple. All the Lord wants us to do is open up his sacred word, his his treasure of a word, written to us for our good and read it day by day with the help of the Holy Spirit. When we read his word, he teaches us to think like him, to feel like him, to talk like him, to act like him, to dream like him, to give ourselves to his purposes, his plans, his promises. All the Lord wants to do is speak to us by the power of the Spirit and mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. Beloved, his plan for us is so incredibly gracious. That's all he wants. And I'm not saying that the moment of fear is a sign of unbelief completely. It probably is a sign to some extent. I doubt that Jesus ever felt fleshly fear ever once in his life. But what I'm talking about is the fear that won't go away, that just persists, that just persists. Like Saul, if you find yourself in that kind of situation, beloved, I encourage you, Press on in patient faith. Wait for the Lord. Go to his word. Let him expose your heart. Let him show yourself to yourself because I promise you that he'll heal you. If you'll just surrender to him, he'll heal you. If Saul would have said, Father, here's my fear. Please strengthen my faith. Oh God, God would have helped him. So beloved, let me just close by asking the question. How are you doing with regard to God's word? Are you allowing your father to speak into your life day by day? Or is he frankly just another piece among lots of pieces in your life? You kind of get to him when you can. You come to church once a week. You're kind of a Christian. Or are you letting your father teach you how to live in the way that he would want you to live? Are you letting your father lead you in the way that you should go? Are you letting your father teach you his word and his will and his ways so that when the moment of crisis comes, you are ready? How is your life in the word right now? I think this would be a helpful way to meditate on this passage. So here's my challenge. Let us daily take up the sword of the Lord and so daily be equipped to fight the fight of faith in this world. Beloved, we're the church of Jesus Christ and so we're, we're not like ISIS. We're not a militarized nation. We'll, we'll never ever be that. But we are a kingdom of priests in this world and the way that we gain our weapons of warfare is by going to the sword of the word every single day. So I wanna encourage you to do that now and let's just go before the Lord now and pray that he would help us. Oh Jesus, it's just a fact that we live by the grace of what you've done for us and that our obedience, our embrace of your word does nothing to earn us favor with you. That's just a fact. And yet at the same time, Lord, when we're in you, you give us a natural hunger for your word. Like newborn babes, we crave that pure spiritual milk and if the craving is not there, something's wrong. So please help us, Lord. Please use this passage to expose our hearts. Please use this passage to expose compromise in the life of this church. Please use this passage to expose compromise in the lives of this church's leaders and of the lives of any who hear this message over the internet. And Father, I pray that by your spirit you would convict and I also pray that by your spirit you would invite us into your presence where you can forgive us and heal us and teach us to walk in a new way. Oh Father, we don't have to go in the way of Saul. We can turn right now. We can hear your loving warning. We can turn right now and embrace your word. So I pray that with the help of your spirit, we would do just that. And I give you my thanks for what you'll do now. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.